Well, we're glad you're here with us this morning at Faith Bible Church as we worship the Lord on this beautiful Lord's Day. Uh, this is an exciting day uh, here today for our church family. We're moving in today to our children and, and uh, youth space. And I went over there this morning and toured it again early this morning and walked through there. It's, it's beautiful. It's hard to believe uh, to me that this day is actually here. And we, we thank God for everything. We thank Him for the, the architect and the general contractor, the subcontractors, all of our children's ministry and student ministry, and just the many volunteers. And for all of you, for your generous financial support and your prayers. Uh, we're not at the finish line yet. Uh, there's still quite a bit to go over there, uh, but we've reached a, a major milestone uh, here in the church for this. And we'll have uh, an official dedication later this fall, probably the last Sunday in November, uh, for the whole building when it's all finally finished. Uh, but we rejoice and give thanks this morning to God for the completion of this phase one, and I hope you'll go over there and look at it uh, when you get an opportunity. Let's, uh, let's just lift our voices now in prayer to the Lord in thanksgiving for what He's done. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. All that is in the heaven and the earth is yours. Thine, O Lord, is the dominion, and you're exalted as head above all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank Thee and praise Thy glorious name. Father, we come before You today to lift our voices in praise and thanksgiving. We thank You for Your faithfulness and Your grace and Your generosity to us. Surely You've done exceedingly and abundantly beyond all we could ask or think. We thank you for our staff here at the church and our, all the workers and volunteers and uh, for the generosity of your people. We come now, Father, and we ask that you'll fill those spaces with your presence, that you'll use them to instruct and to encourage and to inspire. And we come now as your, your people, Father, just for this phase one here this morning to commit it all to you and to your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Well, if you'll take your Bible this morning and turn with me to Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 to 27, the, the last verses of that chapter, uh, as we segue away from our study of 1 Peter, and I hate to do that, I hate to leave that book behind, I enjoyed that study so much, but uh, we had 25 weeks there in 1 Peter, and as again, as we make this segue away from that book, I thought it'd be fitting uh, to look at an event from the life of Peter. I'm just not ready to leave Peter behind yet. And uh, we'll also see in our text here this morning, it's a story about Peter, but we'll also see a couple of interesting parallels uh, between this section and the book of 1 Peter that'll kind of tie it back to that. But I've titled uh, the message this morning, uh, Fishing for the King. My, Mark Twain uh, loved to tell stories about his hunting and fishing exploits. And one time he went up into the woods of Maine and fished and had just caught a, just caught a haul of fish, but it wasn't fishing season. And uh, he was on his way back to New York on a train, and the fish were back there in the baggage car on ice. And as was his custom, he was trying to find somebody to brag about his exploits to. So as he's on the train there, he finds a stranger to whom he begins to boast of this uh, sizable, uh, massive catch of fish. And uh, the man's kind of unresponsive at first, but then gets quite interested. And after a while, Mark Twain says, by the way, uh, who are you, sir? And he says, well, I'm the game warden of the state of Maine. And uh, Mark Twain got a surprised look on his face, and the man said, who are you? And uh, Twain nearly swallowed his cigar, and then he said, well, to be perfectly truthful, warden, I'm the biggest liar in the whole United States. <laughs> Fast thinking there by Mark Twain. Well, fishermen are known to fudge the truth, right? They're, they're not exactly always the most accurate or trustworthy reporters of facts. And uh, this morning in Matthew 17, we're going to look at a fascinating fish story, but it's a fish story that's true. 
It's the greatest fish story, I believe, in the New Testament. Let me read uh, these verses for us. Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 to 27. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon, from whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax, from their sons or from strangers? When Peter said, from strangers, Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and for me. Well, so reads uh, God's inspired word. Now, this morning, we're kind of parachuting down here into the middle of Matthew's gospel, and we need to get our bearings in this book just a little bit. Uh, most of you know that the, the four gospels present four different aspects or four different emphases um, in the life and ministry of Jesus. And the focus of Matthew's gospel is to present Jesus as the king, that Jesus is uh, the Jewish Messiah. That is the thrust of the gospel of Matthew. And in keeping with that theme, in Matthew chapter 17, this chapter shines a spotlight on the kingship of Jesus. It's, it's a fascinating chapter that focuses on the kingship of the Lord Jesus. And it opens back in the first few verses with an event known as the transfiguration of Jesus. Remember in that event, Jesus took Peter, James, and John to a high mountain, just the, the inner circle of the disciples. And probably one of only two times in the Gospels when the essential glory of Jesus, His essential deity, was, was shining through the sackcloth of His humanity. And it says there in those first verses that His face was shining like the sun in its strength. And it's a, a beautiful picture of the second coming glory of Jesus. In fact, Peter, who was there that day, writes about it in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, you know, we, when we told you these things, we weren't following cleverly devised tales. We saw the, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the chapter begins with this powerful picture, this preview of second coming glory of Jesus. But then when you go to the end of the chapter, it ends with Jesus and Peter paying taxes. Now, what a contrast. I mean, you, you, it'd be difficult to imagine a more dramatic contrast than, than, than this in one chapter, from the transfiguration at the beginning to taxes at the end. But when you think about it, that's how life often is for you and for me. We can go from the mountaintop of intimacy with Christ down uh, to the very uh, challenges of everyday life, and it can happen very suddenly. We can be kind of brought back to earth, if you will. Life can shift suddenly from the, the mountaintop to the flatlands of everyday life. So from a mountaintop experience, we can be rudely awakened by the realities of some taxing situation. And that's exactly what we see here in this chapter this morning. Now, what I want to do is look at three main points this morning, the setting of this passage, then we'll look at uh, some of the specifics of this miracle, and then the significance of it for our lives. And we see the setting here in verse 24 when it says, when they came to Capernaum. Now, at this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus and his followers are making their way from up north where the Mount of Transfiguration is, Mount Hermon. It's about a 9,000-foot mountain. They're making their way from there down to Jerusalem for the final time. 
And on their way from the far north in the area of Mount Hermon and Caesarea Philippi on down to Jerusalem, they come through the area of Capernaum. And so Jesus and his disciples stop there for the final time. And of course, Capernaum is Jesus' home base. It's his headquarters up there in Galilee. Again, if you've been to Israel, I hope you can picture the city of Capernaum there in in your mind's eye. But Capernaum is situated right on the north end there of the Sea of Galilee, so that sets the stage later for this miracle involving a fish. Now, while they're there in Capernaum, some Jewish tax collectors come up to Peter and ask him about Jesus paying taxes. Now, this brings up, of course, the whole topic of paying taxes, which is everyone's favorite topic, right? In fact, I was reading a while back, and someone said, if you put together the word the and IRS, it spells theirs. And uh, sometimes it kind of seems that way when tax season rolls around. Uh, But Peter had his own interactions here with the IRS, the, the Israeli Revenue Service. And the question that they ask here of Peter anticipates an affirmative response. They ask, your teacher does pay the temple tax, doesn't he? So it anticipates that Peter will respond positively. Now, the Jews at this time were under the control of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire exacted and levied onerous taxes against all of their provinces, Israel being one of those. So they had to pay a lot of civil taxes to the Roman Empire. But the Jewish people also had to pay religious taxes. And the tax, the tax that's referred to here in this passage was not a Roman civil tax, but it was a Jewish uh, religious tax. It's called the temple tax. It was for the upkeep of the temple and all the area around it there in Jerusalem. Now, we won't turn back there, but if you want to read this week sometime, Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 through 16, this idea of the temple tax is loosely based on those verses. So every year, every man in Israel, every male who was 20 years and upward had to pay uh, this temple tax. And it was collected right around Passover time. So they would send out these tax tax collectors throughout the land of Israel about 30 days in advance to Passover, and they would all pretty much be collected by that time. So these Jewish tax collectors come to Jesus probably to challenge him on this issue because the leaders in Israel that day were always trying to put Jesus kind of on the horns of a dilemma of whether he would pay some tax or not to try to create a crisis. And they thought probably he would consider himself exempt, and they hoped to probably use this as kind of another charge against him. Now, back in Jesus' day, the temple tax per male, 20 years and upward, was two drachma, or a half a shekel. It was called the didrachma, or two drachma. And everybody paid the same amount. So whether you were rich or whether you were poor, everybody paid the same amount, and it was equal to about two days' wages for a working person. So every year, every male, 20 years and up, around Passover, had to pay two days of their salary for that year in this tax if they were a common working person. Now, when they come and they ask Peter, your teacher does uh, pay the two drachma tax, doesn't he? Notice Peter answers yes. And probably he answers yes because he just assumed Jesus did this, or maybe based on past experience, he'd seen Jesus pay it before. Now, there's an old saying that I heard from the time I was a kid growing up. There's nothing certain in life but death and taxes. 
And it's interesting, Jesus experienced both of those. Jesus died, and even our Lord Jesus, the, 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 the King of glory, uh, had to pay taxes. So a discussion then about the temple tax becomes the basis for a dialogue between Jesus and Peter and an unusual miracle involving a fish. So that's the setting for this miracle. Now let's look at a few specifics of this miracle. Um, if, if you know anything about the Gospels, there are 35 recorded miracles in the Gospels. Now, Jesus probably performed thousands of miracles, which is always instructive to me because when you come to a miracle in the Gospels, it's always good to ask the question, why was that particular miracle placed in the Gospels and many other miracles left out? And so this miracle is number 29 of the 35 miracles that Jesus performed, and it's often considered the most controversial and difficult of all the miracles of Jesus. That's interesting because it's such a, a simple miracle, yet it's the most controversial and difficult of all of them. By the way, people have trouble with the other fish story in the Bible as well, don't they? Uh, the one in the Old Testament with Jonas. These fish stories seem to cause a lot of controversy. But there are at least six unique characteristics of this miracle that kind of sets it apart from many of the other miracles. Let me mention these quickly. First of all, it's only recorded in Matthew's gospel. It's, you know, the uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels, which present a lot of the Galilean ministry of Jesus and have a lot of overlap. But this miracle is only in Matthew's gospel. And we ask the question, why does Matthew present this miracle? Well, remember Matthew, known as Levi, was a former tax collector. Um, he would have been fascinated with this miracle of Jesus related to the paying of taxes. Uh, Matthew himself, or Levi, had been a former IRS or Israeli Revenue Service agent. And so this would have made a lasting impression upon him. So he includes it here in his gospel to show the kingship of Jesus. Secondly, this is the only miracle Jesus performed to meet his own needs. For that reason, a lot of scholars will say that they don't believe that this actually occurred or they'll believe that something other than a miracle took place. Because what they'll do is they'll point to the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days back in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus was tempted there by Satan to use his power to meet his own needs outside the will of God. That's basically the gist of those temptations. And so many people reject this because Jesus did a miracle to pay for himself and for Peter. Now, my answer to that is that Jesus didn't use his power here selfishly. And there's no evidence here in this context that this was done outside the will of the Father. Also, the miracle wasn't just for Jesus. It also was a miracle that helped Peter. So I think for that reason, this is a valid miracle that Jesus performed. Now, number three, this is the only miracle that Jesus did involving money. To me, it's interesting in light of the, the health and wealth and prosperity gospel today that's so prevalent that Jesus only does one miracle related to money. I mean, listening to a lot of prosperity teachers today, you'd get the impression that every miracle that Jesus did somehow involved finances. You, know, you need to claim your, your financial miracle. Now, don't get me wrong about this. Jesus is concerned about every area of our lives, including our money and our finances. But money is not the ultimate issue of life, and Jesus knew that better than anyone. 
There's only one miracle that involved money, and it was a miracle for paying of taxes. So we need to put the idea of, of health and wealth gospel certainly into perspective in the life and the ministry of Jesus. So Jesus only did one miracle about money. It involved taxes. Now, I wouldn't count on going out to Lake Arcadia next April to try this out if you're a little short on cash for your taxes. It only happens this one time. Number four, this is the only miracle involving one fish. It's kind of like Jonah, where you have a miracle involving one fish. There are a lot of other miracles that Jesus does that involve uh, many fish. Uh, Feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000 with two fish, uh, multiplying them. Uh, The catching of fish in Luke chapter 5 at the beginning of the the ministry of the disciples, then all the way at the end and a a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus in John 21. Uh, They catch 153 fish, uh, the disciples do. And as you think about this, I mean, people love fish stories. There's a lot of these channels, uh, on some of the more odd channels on TV that carry stuff about fishing all the time. There's a show called Deadliest Catch, up in Alaska. Why anyone would do that, I have no idea. They're fishing for crab. Um, You have the the show Wicked Tuna. There's all kinds of fishing shows. My wife will walk in and see me watching some fishing show. She'll say, why in the world do you do that? You don't even fish that much. I said, I don't know. There's something fascinating about them talking about where they're going to throw this lure and all that kind of stuff. There was a, a viral video this week some of you may have seen about a, somebody was reeling in a, a, a fish out in the ocean, and some kid was standing there right near the back of the boat, and a great white shark came in and took the fish right as they're about to reel it into the boat. I mean, these you know, fishing stories get our attention. And in this case here, though, Jesus uses one single little fish, which I think makes the miracle to me even more astounding and incredible. I mean, I really do believe this is Peter's biggest fish story. And this is also the only reference in the New Testament to catching a fish with a line and a hook. All the other fish stories, the fish are are caught with nets, which is, of course, what commercial fishermen used. So a miracle involving just one fish is, is powerful to me because sometimes we see the greatness of God in the little things more than we do in the big things. It's often true that we see the hand of God more in the still small voice than we do in the the fire or in the earthquake or in these great things that are happening. So we need to look for God in the little things of life. Uh, Number five, this miracle was performed for Peter. Uh, The text never indicates how the other 11 disciples got their tax paid. (laughs) I think that's interesting. Peter got his paid. He was there with Jesus. But Jesus performed several miracles just for Peter. And he healed Peter's mother-in-law. He helped Peter two other times besides this time catch fish. And he empowered Peter to walk on water. Jesus healed the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest that Peter cut off the night Jesus was arrested. And later on in in Acts chapter 12, Peter, the night before he was to be killed, uh, was delivered miraculously uh, from prison by uh, the angel of the Lord. And Jesus performed this miracle for Peter as well. He knew knew Peter's need, and Jesus met it. And to me, this is beautiful because we just finished studying 1 Peter. And one of my favorite verses in 1 Peter was there near the end of the book where Peter says, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. 
And Peter may have looked back to this and remembered the time that Jesus did a miracle to pay uh, that two drachma tax for him. And he may have looked back to when Jesus healed his mother-in-law and helped him catch fish and empowered him to walk on water and healed the ear of Malchus and delivered him from prison. And Peter says, you can cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Jesus did these miracles just for Peter because of his care for him. And we need to recognize all of us here that know Christ, that he cares for us intimately in our lives uh, as well. So Peter experienced the loving care of Jesus over and over again. Then the sixth thing about this miracle, kind of a specific about it, it's the only miracle that doesn't have the results recorded. It's the only miracle where the miracle itself is never actually given. We would expect here another verse after verse 27, but uh, there's no actual statement or description of the miracle. Now, because of that, many people believe there was no miracle. Uh, Many well-known commentators, in fact, William Barclay is one of them, what Barclay believes is that what Jesus was telling Peter is to go out and to catch a fish and or to go out and go back to fish again and catch some fish, and then he could sell those fish, and he'd get the money, and then he'd be able to pay the tax from the fish uh, that he caught, since the miracle here um, is never stated. So many, many uh, people hold to that idea, but I disagree with that strongly. It seems to me here that a miracle occurred, that there's nothing here to indicate anything other than Peter finding a real coin in the mouth of a real fish. I like what Warren Wiersbe says, He says, we would expect another verse, verse 28, that would read, and Peter went to the sea, cast in a hook, drew up a fish. When it opened its mouth, he found there a coin, and he used it to pay the temple tax for himself and for Jesus. But then uh, Wiersbe says this, how do we know that a miracle took place? And then he says this, and I love this, because Jesus said that it would. That's how we know. Jesus said that it would happen. And even though it's not recorded, uh, we know that it did. And another reason I believe this is a miracle is, we'll talk about this in a few moments, but Jesus in verse 25 is claiming to be the Son of God. And so this miracle that he does proves that Jesus is who he's just claimed to be. So it's an authentication to Peter that Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of the King, whom he's just claimed to be. So those are some kind of specifics about this little miracle that make it unique. Now, let's look at the significance of this miracle for our lives. Now, most people will say, most commentaries you'll read will say the main point of this passage is that it teaches us as the followers of Jesus to pay our taxes, uh, to be good citizens. And that's certainly part of it, but there's a lot more here, I believe, than that. And I want to mention five lessons that are all related to the kingship of Jesus. Because remember again, that's what Matthew's gospel is about. That's the thrust of this gospel, and it's the thrust of this chapter. And the first thing we see here is that Jesus knows all. Jesus knows all. He knows everything. Jesus is omniscient. Notice verse 25. He said, yes. And when he'd come into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? 
Now, Peter's jaw must have almost hit the ground when he walked in there because Jesus knew the conversation that Peter had just had with these Jewish tax collectors. Before Peter can say anything, Jesus raises the subject of paying taxes. And Peter got another glimpse here into the deity of Christ that Jesus knows what we say. He knows our hearts, he knows our thoughts, and he knows our motives. And this is highlighted again and again in the Gospels. It's it's a lot in in John's Gospel. In fact, in uh, John chapter 1, Jesus knew that Nathanael had been sitting under a fig tree, and I believe he even knew what Nathanael had been reading. When Jesus said that to Nathanael, Nathanael is struck with the person of Jesus. In John chapter 6, verse 64, it says that Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who would not believe. John 13, 1 says, Jesus knowing that his time had come. And my favorite statement of the omniscience of Jesus is John 18, verse 4. Jesus, knowing everything that was going to come upon him, went forth. Now, you and I don't know anything that's going to come upon us. We don't know what's going to happen this afternoon or tomorrow morning or next week. But Jesus knew everything that was coming upon him, and he went forth. Jesus knows everything. There was a a picture that used to hang in a lot of people's houses when I was a kid that said, Jesus is the silent listener of every conversation. Now, that's comforting, but it's also challenging. And for me, when I was a kid, it was kind of scary. You'd read, I mean, Jesus is the listener of every conversation. You think about all the things you were saying. But Jesus knows everything. And the brightest person who's ever lived on the face of the earth knows almost nothing when you really think about it. We know so little. I like the story about an exam that was given in a, a college years ago. And everybody had a blue book, those old blue books. They were writing their, their exams out in those books. And there was a, a set time the exam was to end. And so the professor called out the time. He says, it's time to put your pencils down and to, the exam is over. But he noticed one student in the back writing just a little bit after he called the time of the exam being over. So everybody was handing in their blue books and putting them in a big stack on the desk. And that student came up to bring his up there. And everybody else had left the room. And the professor said, I won't accept this. This flabbergasted student said, well, why? He said, well, I told you to stop. And he said, you kept going. And the student said, well, what's going to happen now? And the professor said, we're well, going to flunk the class. With that, the student kind of stood up and he said, do you know who I am? And the professor said, no, I have no idea who you are. And he said, well, good. And he picked up the stack of exams and put his in the middle somewhere and ran out of the class. <laughs> Jesus isn't like that, right? I mean, Jesus knows. He knows everything. He knows that's a pretty smart student, by the way, who did that. He should have gotten an A in the class just for that. But Jesus knows everything. Jesus knows who you are. He knows what you think. He knows where you go. He knows what you say. And he knows what your motives are. And this morning, I, w- I would like to let us, uh, let us allow our knowledge of his knowledge of us to challenge us and to change us to realize he has complete knowledge of everything in your life. And our knowledge of his knowledge of us should transform us and should change uh, the way we live. The second thing we see here, Jesus not only knows all, he controls all. He's not only omniscient, he knows everything, but he's omnipotent, he controls it all. Jesus paid this tax in a manner that demonstrated his control over everything, down to the most minute details. 
He met the need exactly in an unbelievably dramatic way. Years ago, I read a book by Charles Ryrie. Um, It's called The Miracles of Our Lord. And he has a paragraph in there about this miracle, and I I never forgot it after I read this, just the, 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 the detail of it. He says, how many fish were swimming in the Sea of Galilee that day? I have no idea, but there were 22 species of fish in the lake. A catch of 153 fish is recorded in John 21. But there must have been hundreds of thousands of fish in the lake. Of those, how many might have a coin in their mouths? This occurrence would not be impossible, but not too many would have a coin in their mouth. Of those, how many would have a stator? That's what the shekel was called back then, the the Jewish shekel, a stator, equal to four drachmas in their mouths. Not a one drachma coin or a denarius or a mite or a farthing, but a stator. And of that small number, perhaps only one or two fish in the whole lake, what are the chances that one such fish would be swimming near Capernaum? And what are the chances that that fish would take Peter's hook first? He said, Ryrie says, such minute and infinite control. Nothing is outside his control. Our needs, circumstances, and our times are in his hands. So Jesus ordained that somebody would drop a shekel or a stator into the water, that a fish would scoop it up in its mouth but wouldn't swallow it, and that the fish would swim there near the shore of Capernaum and the moment Peter walked up, that fish would be in the right place, and when Peter cast his hook, he would catch that fish. I mean, the the staggering span of the knowledge and the control of the Lord Jesus. He's the sovereign over the seas, and he's sovereign over all of life. And if you're like me, when you think about your life sometimes and the details of life, we often wonder to ourselves, does God really care and is he really interested and is he really in control of the, of, the, of the details of my life? I think some Christians today almost have a, a view of God that's really consistent with what we would call deism. You know, God kind of created everything, but he, he's not really controlling what happens. I mean, passages like this in the Bible show the the minute control that God has over everything. He controls everything in our lives down to the smallest detail, even when things may seem out of control in your life. So I pray that'll be a comfort to all of us this morning. Number three, Jesus owns it all. He owns everything. Notice in verse 25, he says, from whom do the kings of the earth collect custom or poll tax, from their sons or strangers? Peter says, well, from strangers. And he says, then the sons are exempt. Uh, Jesus is the son of God. In fact, the temple for which the temple tax is being raised belonged to Jesus. It was his temple. Remember, he went out, he went twice and, and cleansed it and cleaned it out. Jesus is royalty. He's the son of the king. All the way back in the book of Malachi in the Old Testament, in Malachi 3.1, there's a prophecy of the coming of the Messiah, and it says the Lord will suddenly come to His temple. And that was fulfilled when Jesus walked the earth the first time He walked into the temple in Jerusalem. He was walking into His temple. And of course, the sons are exempt from taxes imposed by their fathers. Uh, The owner doesn't pay taxes to himself. Caesar was exempt from Roman tax. So Jesus is claiming here that he is the one who owns it all. It's his temple. But then following after that, we see that Jesus serves all. 
We see the stunning humility of Christ on full display because while it's his temple and he owns it, he goes ahead and pays the tax. And by the way, this is a beautiful entree to Matthew chapter 18, and the theme in that chapter really is humility. So the end of chapter 17 segues beautifully to Matthew 18, where it begins with the statement that if you want to be converted, you have to become like a little child to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the chapter ends with Jesus telling a a powerful parable about forgiveness, which requires us to humble ourselves to forgive someone who has offended us. So Jesus was willing to pay this temple tax, even though he didn't have to, in demonstration of his great humility. To me, in chapter 17 of Matthew, there is a striking paradox. At the beginning of this chapter, Jesus is the Lord of glory, shining like the sun in its strength up on Mount Hermon. And at the end of this chapter, he's too poor to pay uh, the, the temple tax. I mean, what a, what a contrast. What a paradox. Now, he's not obligated to pay. He had every right not to pay because he's the king. But in order not to offend, Jesus pays the temple tax. In other words, he gladly surrendered his rights in order to serve better. And one of the things that Jesus knew that we need to learn in life is what to insist on and what not to insist on. There's certain things we need to insist on that are, that are points of truth that we need to, to, to put a stake in the ground. But there's other areas of life that we don't need to insist on. And the problem is sometimes we get those things mixed up. Jesus knew when to forego his rights for the sake of others and for the sake of the gospel. And the question for us this morning is, is are we willing to humbly do the same? Are there times when we have rights that we can stand on and freedoms that we're willing to forego for the good of others and for the gospel? If you look at our culture today, everybody's fighting for their rights. Everybody's a victim. Everybody's out there rioting and protesting something. And certainly there are things worth fighting for, but there's a lot of times we need to forego rights and freedoms that we have for the sake of others and the sake of the gospel and not to cause an offense and to cause other people to stumble. There's a story from many, many years ago in a large city. There was a blind man who always carried a lantern around with him at night. This was back before there were street lights and everyone walked at night. And so he'd always take this lantern out, lantern, and carry it around with him. And finally, someone asked him, why do you carry a lantern with you around at night? I mean, you can't see. And his, his response is beautiful. He said, I don't want other people to stumble over me. And that's the way it should be for you and for me in our lives. That should be our heart that we will willingly and uh, humbly surrender our own rights at times so that other people uh, won't stumble over us. So Jesus knows all, Jesus controls all, Jesus owns all, he serves all. And then finally, this is a beautiful point, Jesus pays all, he ransoms all. Back in that day, there was no two drachma coin. So two men often went together to pay the tax. Because if you paid a full shekel or what was called a stater, then that would pay four drachmas for two men. So two people would often go together and pay the tax. It was called a, a Tyrian shekel. And back in Exodus chapter 30, where this whole idea of this temple tax comes from, there's a powerful statement there that says, when a man 20 years old and upward would pay this temple tax, it says there, it was a ransom for his soul to the Lord. In other words, it was ransom money that was paid. 
Because the money that you paid as a man 20 years old and upward substituted for you personally going and working and serving in the temple. So rather than personally going and serving there, you paid this two drachma tax as a substitute or a ransom for you having to actually go do the physical service. And it's beautiful here at the end of verse 27 that Jesus paid the ransom money for Peter. And I think his payment of the ransom money for Peter here foreshadows the ransom that Jesus would pay for Peter and for all of us at the cross. In fact, if you look at the two verses right before our text this morning, notice in verse 22, Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and he'll be raised on the third day. The second of Jesus' passion predictions in Matthew's gospel. And down in verse 27, at the end of the verse, Jesus said, take that and give it to them for you and me. The word for there means in place of. It's substitution. And so Jesus is saying, you pay this tax, Peter, and pay it for you and for me. And in that way, Jesus was paying the tax for Peter as a picture of the ransom he would pay when he would die on the cross. And I think that perhaps Peter had this in mind 30 years later in 1 Peter chapter 1 when he said, for you know it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you've been redeemed, but with the precious blood of a lamb without spot or defect, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not by silver or gold that we're ransomed, but it's with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Look, for every one of us here this morning, I hope you know that you owe God a ransom because of your sin. And the really, really bad news is all of us are unable to pay. We are spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing whatsoever to offer to God to pay the ransom for our soul. But at the cross, Jesus paid in full the ransom that we could never, ever pay for ourselves. And the question this morning for all of us is, have you accepted the ransom that he paid? It's all been done. All you have to do is simply take it. In 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul says, there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Back in 1193, uh, the English king Richard I, he was known as Richard the Lionheart. He was returning from the Crusades in the Holy Land back to England. And as he was making his way through Europe, he was uh, captured by Leopold V, who was the, uh, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire at the time. He was in Austria. He was, captured him in Austria. And uh, he demanded a, a ransom for Richard the Lionheart to be released. He demanded 150,000 marks, which was equal to three tons of silver. I mean, a massive ransom even for that day. But the, the people of England loved King Richard very much, and they, they submitted themselves to extra taxation. Many of the nobles donated their fortunes for the release of Richard the Lionheart. And after many months, they'd raised this 150-mark amount of money, and it was paid. And that's where we get the expression, a king's ransom. Have you ever heard that before? Man, that's a king's ransom. That's where that statement comes from, this massive amount of money that was paid to ransom. Uh, King Richard the Lionheart. But for us, a king's ransom is not a ransom that we pay. It's the tremendous price that Jesus, the King of Kings, paid for us 
when he died on the cross for our sins. For us, and in the gospel message, it's not the king that was ransomed, but it's the king who paid the ransom so that you and I can be set free. And it's the most lavish, expensive ransom that's ever been paid in the history of mankind. And I pray this morning, if you've never received it, that right there in the quietness of your own heart, right where you sit, that you'll take that ransom that Jesus paid and you'll receive it and you'll make it your own. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you that he's sovereign, but we thank you that he's a savior. And if there's anyone here this morning who's never received that ransom that he purchased for them, I pray that right now in the quietness of their heart, that they'll see their need for Jesus and they'll take him and believe in him and receive him to be their savior. We thank you for that king's ransom that was paid for us to wash away our sins. Father, may his name be praised forever. And Father, as we think about this story today, this wonderful miracle that shows us the control of Jesus over not just the big things of life, but all the details of our lives. I pray for all of us here, Lord, that we would trust our King with all the details of life and so many things that so often we don't understand why they're happening or what's not happening. We'll we'll trust that we have a King, our Savior, who's in control. Father, I pray for every one of us here as we leave here today that we'll live for the one uh, who gave himself for us. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen.